0: I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you Behind the Music. In this episode, I'm joined by Daniel Foster, Principal Viola of the National Symphony Orchestra. He tells us all about the viola, its early development, how composers used it through the centuries, and he plays some of his favorite examples on the viola. Plus, a story from a wedding gig that he can laugh about now, years later. In my head, Dan, the viola is just one of those instruments that has always existed. For some reason, it feels like there's never been a time in music where we didn't have instruments like the viola or the violin or the flute. But of course, that's impossible, right? The viola at one point did not exist. I would have to assume that you are 100% correct about that. Because everything comes from somewhere. So for the viola, where did it come from? About what time? And was what
1: was first, maybe the violin or the viola? You know, I think that all these instruments did sort of, and by all these instruments, I'm thinking about the violin, the viola, the cello, sort of probably developed in the mid-1500s, I would say. And, you know, it was probably just the kind of tinkering around that humans are always want to do, in terms of thinking there's gotta be a better way or there's gotta be a better version, always looking to improve things. And I think that the the instruments, sort of the violin, the viola, cello as we know them, kind of developed at the same time because they had this new design that we think of now with these instruments evolved because it, they were a little bit more powerful and sound than their predecessors, And so I think they developed together because you're trying to develop sort of the the choir of instruments. You want your soprano voice, you want your alto voice, you want your tenor and bass voices. So if you're going to design a new violin, then you're going to be designing a new viola as well. So the mid-1500s,
0: and of course, what is that saying? Um, Necessity is the mother of invention. You've got these higher instruments, you've got these lower instruments, but of course, kind of like Goldilocks too, you need something in between to round out and fill out the sound so it sounds balanced. Yes. So how would you describe it compared to the violin. And I, I hate to use that kind of comparison, but I think for the average person, when you are looking at the orchestra or people performing on stage and you're at a distance, the violin and the viola, they can kind of blend together. They're harder to differentiate from a distance.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. Even for someone who's been around the instruments, it can be tricky. I remember even as a kid growing up, my father played in an orchestra, and so I'd go played in the same orchestra that I play in, but I would go to the concerts, and even for me, it was hard to tell, especially if the violas were sitting next to the violins. Actually, it's interesting because now in the National Symphony, the violas sit on the edge of the stage, on the right side, if you're in the audience facing the stage, we're on the right side, and we're separated from the violins by the cello section. So it's actually easier for an audience member to figure out which are violists because we're kind of separated from the instruments that look just like ours. So yeah, essentially the viola's played exactly like the violin, but it's just slightly larger as you would expect with a slightly lower uh, register. Um, has the same number of strings, but whereas the violin's highest string is the E string and the second highest is the A string, the viola's highest string is the A. But on the lower end we have one string lower than than violins do. And so that sort of accounts for the register difference. So the viol, it's a bit bigger,
0: it has some lower strings, it has what well, can go lower, it fills out that sound. Now, is the bow different too? Is that a bit larger as well? You know, it's
1: slightly different. Yes, yeah, slightly heavier. Not necessarily longer, but slightly heavier. You actually find you might think that You know, as the instruments get bigger, well, the bows must get bigger, too. Well, they they do, but they definitely don't get longer because the bigger the instrument, going down to cello, going down to bass, where the strings are thicker, you actually need a heavier bow and a slower-moving bow to get the sound out. So you actually need a bow that's a little bit shorter. For example, cello bows and bass bows are shorter than violin and viola bows.
0: That's interesting, because actually, I didn't even think about that. So there's all these subtle differences. And I think also, right, the viola is not also a standard size of dimensions. Even amongst the viola section, there can be a slight difference between size.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the only thing I changed about what you said is just to take out the word slight. I mean, the variations are significant. For a, a highly trained violinist, they can pick up different violins, and they can sense the difference in the size of the instruments when it's minuscule, even then they can tell it's, it's like a highly trained athlete or something. They can pick up a baseball player. They can pick up their bat and they can pick up uh, one of the teammates bats that may weigh like a quarter of an ounce different and be a millimeter different length. And they'll, they'll be able to tell, but with viola, the, the differences are, are huge. It can be literally like a couple of inches different in body length. Um, So yeah, it it varies widely, and that really has to do with, frankly, the eternal struggle to find the right compromise between sound and playability of the viola. Because if it's too big, it's very awkward to play. If it's too small, you're having a hard time getting the the depth of the sound that uh, that you want. So you 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 know it's sort of uh, the viola is kind of a compromise. that way and so makers over the years were always trying different things so even going back to like the 1580s there was a period of time when i was playing on a an instrument that was made in 1580 and it was very large it had this great deep sound but you know it got a little fatiguing to play on Um, and then you got into the 18th century and started making instruments a lot smaller so it evolved over time and now with modern makers, you know, there's a lot of talk. Like if you want to get somebody to make an instrument for you, one of the big things they'll be talking about is, well, how big do you want it? That's not a huge conversation with violinists and violin makers, but it is with viola makers and violists.
0: That's interesting to hear how the for the viola, it's, it's quite a significant difference. And you mentioned the viola, the viola you were playing on. From 1580. I mean, I have to ask how I would be very nervous just holding this relic. I mean, is it a little nerve-wracking to play? Do you go a little bit more gentle if there's like an aggressive line? Maybe you don't play it as a
1: as aggressive. No, you really don't think about that. I mean, there's a lot of ways to to think about it, but you know, nobody's ever damaged an instrument really by playing on it. It's usually some kind of careless situation. So you know, we've all been trained to. Uh, Handle our instruments with care and just sort of the proper, safe way to carry instruments. The instrument I have now is also old; it was made in the uh, 1780s. But the other way of looking at it is, hey, you know, it's it's survived this long; it must be pretty tough. But I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to test that theory. I'll I'll be careful with it. Yeah, please don't. So, from the mid
0: 1500s, getting into the Baroque period in the 1600s. What is the early music like for the viola? Is there any particularities that you um, notice that are being that are different or its role in ensembles?
1: The Baroque era was still very kind of uh, transitional, I think, and I'm, I'm no big expert on it, but really when I think about in the orchestra, if we're playing Bach or if we're playing Handel, we're really functioning in that sort of classic ensemble role as that uh, third voice going from soprano, alto, tenor, you could call us alto um, or tenor voice in an ensemble, so we're just filling that job. You didn't find literature being written for viola as a solo instrument very much, you know, it was part of this ensemble of consort of strings, you could say. And what would you say
0: is a piece of music from the Baroque period, the 1600s, early 1700s, that
1: shows the viola off well? Well, I don't know in terms of necessarily showing off the viola. It wasn't necessarily the goal of composers at that at that time. And, of course, I personally have a little bit less experience playing that repertoire. But a piece that we play in the orchestra every year is... Uh, Handel's Messiah, which is, you know, it's a big oratorio with chorus, with soloists, with orchestra. You've got organ, you've got harpsichord. And it's interesting because here you'll see that there are many movements of the piece, actually, that the violas don't play. A lot of times some of the pieces with a solo singer will just have a soprano string line, which would be the violins, and oftentimes the first and second violins actually play just one violin part together and then you have the what's called the continuo which is the bass line which is the cellos, basses and harpsichord and so the violas just sit those ones out in a way it sort of exemplifies how composers would use the viola so when there's a, a big choral number when everybody's singing playing together and they want that whole ensemble and all the voices reinforce the middle voices as well then violas are brought in but then you'll have these um number of pieces along the way where we're just sitting enjoying the music along with the audience that's so
0: funny you don't think that part of how the instrument is used is sometimes in certain periods how it's not used and then you get to you know maybe it's fun to play but it's also fun to sit back and just have a nice seat in the in the concert hall there is a great video. I'm going to put it on the show notes page. I'm sure you have uh, seen it. It was just... Uh, I made the rounds years ago. It's from the ensemble La Serenissima. They put a GoPro camera right on the um, viola next to the player's um, shoulder, and you're getting this viola um, point of view of playing um, a concerto by Vivaldi. It's actually quite funny, and one of the things is not just the view is funny, but they're also playing almost the same notes the entire time, just a few notes repeating over and over again, and I'll put that on the show notes page, but it's just a very interesting to see and kind of feel what it's like to play the viola in this Baroque music from uh, maybe the viola player's uh, point of view.
1: Interesting. I actually haven't seen that, so I will also check that out.
0: Okay, yes, it's It's great. It's very, um, it's very fun. So from this inner voice in the Baroque period, if we move a little bit later into the 18th century, do we start to see composers get a little more adventurous and use
1: the viola in a more soloistic way. You start to see some of that and it's little by little, but you know any violist who's thinking about the classical era, you know, really goes to Mozart because he sort of expanded not exactly what the viola did, but how he used it became in ensembles became very original and he did sort of recognize its unique color capabilities and, and took advantage of that in certain solo situations. So for example, he wrote a whole series of what are called viola quintets. Uh, the reason they're called viola quintets is because he takes the standard string quartet, which is two violins, viola, and cello, and adds an extra viola. So now you have two violins, two violas, and cello. and Adding that extra inner voice part just adds incredible richness, and those pieces are some of his greatest uh, chamber music. In my view, they surpass his string quartets. And what you have then, it creates all these interesting possibilities of how to use the violas. You can use them in pairs playing the same line in, in harmony together, or you can use the first viola in like a soloistic dialogue with the first violin. And that's where you see sort of, oh, the viola can have this sort of solo voice. It allows him to to pair things up in all sorts of really interesting ways. He also wrote the uh, Sinfonia Contratante for violin and viola with orchestra. So it's like a concerto for violin and viola. You know, he's uh, sort of recognizing that you can take this sort of timbre, this color, out of the ensemble and it can function in a, in a little bit more of a soloistic way or you can use multiple violas in an ensemble to create extra richness so he was doing both of those things I think that really sort of uh, spurred things on as far as the viola sort of developing a, its own distinct identity. Many many composers by the way enjoyed playing viola in ensembles and I think this sort of feeling of being in the midst of the harmony. If it's your kind of thing, it's really fun. I mean, that's kind of what I most enjoy about playing viola in a group.
0: I think you're exactly right with composers who play viola, because I believe Mozart did as well, right? And it puts you in the middle of the ensemble. If you play violin and then you end up having to be in the last desk off towards the very, very side of the stage, you're not hearing you might not be hearing everything as well as you want in terms of like the balance but if you're if I'm a composer and I'm being able to sit in the middle of the orchestra it sounds like a perfect place to hear oh you know I need to add you know flute here or you know I should change this here it gives you a great vantage point of um one being a team player I guess but two in just how you can hear the ensemble so if we're looking at now you know from the mid 1500s to to Mozart, it's an inner voice not utilized as well as it could be. You get to Mozart um, into the seventeen, mid seventeen, late 1700s. Composers start using the viola in more creative ways and using it as a solo instrument like Mozart, but also better inner voices. When we get to the 19th century, composers um, later on like um, Beethoven and then Brahms, I'm wondering if we see if there's a big difference between how it's used with those composers in comparison to earlier ones, and then even today, has it it changed much how it's used?
1: You know, yeah, I think that the the evolution, it sort of went towards sort of more and more virtuosity, I guess you would say, to match, you know, sort of the expectations of the other string instruments to kind of, yeah, match up to that. You're asked to play through a, a broader range, like you wouldn't just sort of, when you get into your upper range where it crosses over into the violin range, a composer would be less likely to say, okay, well that's as far as we're going to go here. And they start using the higher register of the instrument. Just compositional styles in general became much more sort of involved in having their own soloistic moments or having many, many different functions. And then, you know, as you went farther into the mid to late 19th century, this sort of fascination with timbres and colors and so a composer would would say well yeah normally I would give this line to the violins because it sits right in their register but what would it sound like if I gave it to the violas or even to the cellos you'd get a totally different timbre therefore the music will say something different and so I think composers started to really stretch all the instruments in the orchestra across the board and experiment with what happens when you take instruments out of their sort of normal comfort zone and these incredible colors that you can get from that. You know, viola is part of that. The demands on the on the player, were just always uh, getting higher and higher.
0: And looking at the 19th century, what is a piece from this time period that you would say
1: shows off the viola? You know, it's interesting because these are pieces that were not originally written for viola, and I'm speaking of the two sonatas by Johannes Brahms. Really, some of the last pieces that he wrote, he actually wrote them as clarinet sonatas for a clarinetist that he uh, heard after he kind of had thought he was retired from composing, and he uh, was inspired by the sound of this clarinetist and wrote these two sonatas. And in his infinite wisdom, he also arranged them for viola. There's a, a sort of similarity of register between clarinet and viola, but... Um, He made many, many changes to the solo part to make it more idiomatic, more appropriate for viola. There's places where he added uh, double stops, which is playing two notes at once, which clarinets don't really do. And he changed the register of certain things to put it into a sort of the sweet spot for viola, whereas like a clarinet has this incredible sound in its upper register with great color and everything. Maybe it worked better for the viola to show off the middle register more so he he reworked it himself for viola and uh, those two sonatas remain very very popular with violists and they are really interesting to listen to played by each instrument and sort of to compare
0: well dan i think after hearing all of this about the viola and how it's used i think we would love to hear you play a couple of
1: things Uh, what is the first thing you'd like to play for us I thought I would play the opening of the second movement of uh, Mozart's Sinfonia Concertante. Um, Well, not the opening, but the first entrance of the viola, the solo viola. I wanted to play this just because I think it shows you the timbre of the instrument. When you hear it, you will think, yeah, that doesn't sound like a violin sounds. That doesn't sound like a cello sounds. Okay, that's the sound of the viola.
0: Dan, that is absolutely beautiful. It's lyrical. It's it's singing. It sounds
1: like you're you're pouring your heart out on the solo. You know, one of the things I love about this moment is that it's an answer to the violin who has played the opening theme first, and then the viola responds. And what I love is that, whereas the sort of the underlying harmony in the violin uh, solo is you could call predictable, nothing Mozart did is predictable, so uh, it's not that, but it's, it's sort of what you would expect, and then when the viola plays, the harmony just takes these incredible turns in different directions, and so it's like going from a two-dimensional to a three-dimensional world, it's just um, uh, a fantastic moment, so I really enjoy that part of it. So, what is another thing you can play for us? I thought that... Uh, I would jump ahead a little bit into the 20th century and play uh, a segment of an orchestral part uh, written by Shostakovich in his uh, Fifth Symphony, which is probably his most well-known symphony. I think this is interesting because you see an example of how composers, especially moving into the 20th century, started to use the instruments outside of their sort of normal place Role in the sonority of an orchestra and and the kind of interesting colors that you can achieve because this excerpt that I'm going to be playing, he could have written it into the violin part. It's, it sits kind of comfortably in the violin register. But I think that there's a timbre, a specific timbre that he was after of having the violas play in a very, very high register that was capturing the essence of of the mood that he was trying to create, this sort of fragility to it, and that just wouldn't have been there had he written it in the instrument where it would lie most comfortably. Um, and I think that that was a characteristic of composers as he moved into the, into the 20th century. So I'll play that sort of as an example of this different way of using the instrument.
0: That is I mean it's incredible how different it sounds to the Mozart. It's still singing, it's beautiful, it has um, a totally different emotion to it but then it's it crosses over into this violin register and then it goes back down again. The sound is just um, it's very intriguing.
1: Yeah, you know he's covering such a broad range within that little bit of time and it creates a very haunting atmosphere and you know certainly if you listen to it in the context, of the whole orchestra, you'll hear how that works. It's actually a, a, a passage that very commonly appears on auditions for orchestras for viola because it's very exposed and has these big leaps and you've got to go from the top of the instrument to the bottom. I'm wondering about
0: that. This was written in 1937 and it's now used in in orchestral auditions. So, I mean, people come in knowing this like it like the back of their hand. But in 1937, would this have been a part that was unusual, and not just unusual, but kind of difficult to prepare? Like, if you saw this come to your folder in the orchestra, you'd say, oh, I need to spend some time practicing this because it's just so high.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. I mean, it wouldn't have come completely out of, out of left field because, like I said, other composers were starting to find the outer edges of instrumentally what, what the viola could do. I mean, I think about uh, Richard Strauss, and in some ways, that was contemporaneous, but um, or even uh, uh, Rachmaninoff, I think, of some passages in his symphonies uh, where we're really going to the upper registers. But, but Strauss is a great example. By the time he was writing his uh, orchestral works, you weren't going to be any more technically taxed than you would be playing, playing that. But each thing presents its own unique challenge, and probably the first orchestra sitting down the first time to play it, not knowing what to expect, uh, they were probably in for a little surprise. So we've heard Mozart, now Shostakovich. What's another thing you can play for us? Just for a, a change of pace, I thought I'd play a, a segment of a movement of a sonata for solo viola by Paul Hindemith, composer who is kind of out of favor these days. Um, there was a couple of orchestral pieces that used to get played with some regularity, but you don't hear a lot of them anymore. But he's a really important composer for violists. He was a violist himself, and wrote seven sonatas for viola and so it really expanded the the repertoire for the instrument and, and championed the instrument as its own solo voice so we owe him a debt of gratitude the movement that i'm playing or the segment is just a, a complete break from sort of this idea of the any kind of delicacy or sort of background element that you might think of as a viola and accompanying instrument uh This is a very um, super aggressive piece. It's supposed to be wild, and it says that the beauty of tone is of secondary importance. And so it has this kind of crazed uh, sound to it. And there's also a lot of open C strings, so you get to hear a lot of the lowest note that the viola can play.
0: Dan, that is way more intense than I think you described. I've I kind of feel like Hindemith made up for all the times the viola sat idly by in Handel's Messiah
1: in just a minute. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, it's it's uh, it's an incredible musical expression of rage or hysteria or just sort of a musical manifestation of losing it. And you're playing. We can hear those
0: multiple notes at once. Those are um, double stops? That's right. And that you mentioned you're hearing the low C string, open C string. Do you not usually play on wide open strings, as in having no fingers down on the
1: strings? Is that something you avoid in music? Not necessarily. It, it really depends on the context. That's not an easy question to, to answer. When you're playing an open string you get the most open vibration of the instrument because the string is very, very, very strongly stopped at its two ends. Whereas when I put a finger down, the pad of my finger is is a little bit less, you know, it's a little mushy there how the string is stopped then on, on the end. It kind of absorbs some of the sound? In, in a way, it can, yeah. It absorbs some of the overtones. On the other hand, you could then add the the vibrato, that characteristic sound that strings will get, that also adds color. But of course, vibrato was used very differently throughout different uh, musical eras. So, you know, we might find in Baroque music, classical music, we're being a little more judicious with vibrato. We might tend to use more open strings because that clean sound uh, is an advantage, whereas. Maybe in more Romantic-era music, the lack of vibrato on a note might sort of stick out, and therefore you would choose to avoid an open string. So the context is really important in that.
0: Okay, that's that's really helpful because, yeah, it, it's not just, it depends on the time period, depends on the composer. It's not just, oh, you avoid open strings. It's, well, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And when was that written? That was
1: written in 1922, Okay, so almost 100 years ago now. Right, and actually before the Shostakovich Symphony.
0: Yes. So that's a lot of variety. We have Mozart, Shostakovich, and hindemith different styles. You're, on one hand, doing this beautiful singing in Mozart, crossing over to the violin register in Shostakovich, and to um, use your and Hindemith's words, you'll, you're just losing it in his um, viola sonata. So... What is your role like as principal viola of the National Symphony Orchestra? What duties does that entail uh, more than someone who is a section
1: violist? You know, it's, it's different responsibilities. Of course, a lot is exactly the same, because much of the time, all 12 of us are playing the exact same music all together, and so you're functioning exactly the same way as all of your colleagues around you. Of course, there are moments when there are passages written for just one viola to play. And so when that happens, I'm the one who plays those. So that's obviously, a you could say, an added or a different responsibility there. And then there's what I sort of call the, the, the service-oriented aspect of, of my job, which is that you know there has to be somebody who can answer questions or you know, if something has to be resolved one way or another, somebody has to be the one to do that. And so that's sort of uh, falls into my responsibility as well. So for me, an important thing when I'm preparing is that I don't just prepare my part and know how to play my part. I really try to know how it fits into everything else. And I try to anticipate as much as I can what kind of questions might come up. I try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's a member of the section and think, well, what kind of things would they not be sure about based on preparing this? For example, sometimes a viola part may not just be one part. As we talked about with Mozart, a lot of composers after Mozart would do, which is dividing uh, the viola part into two separate parts or three separate parts or four separate parts, you see. And so somebody has to figure out who's going to play which parts. And that needs to be marked in the parts so that the players in the section know which part they should be preparing and which part they should plan to play. You don't really want too much confusion uh, in the rehearsals if you can avoid it. Sometimes you can't avoid it or sometimes you could have and you didn't and you wish you had avoided it. So I'm trying to anticipate as much as I can any kind of questions. And then for me, I also try to always prepare and play my part with a musical point of view already there, just as I would if I were playing chamber music where I was the only violist playing my part. I have total responsibility to to play that part in as compelling a way as possible in uh, a way that makes musical sense. So I, I I I try to have that idea and then getting into rehearsal, being ready to pivot at a moment's notice if a conductor asks it to be done differently. But I think it's better to come in with a point of view and then change than to come in without it because I think in a certain way, that can communicate uh, to the rest of the players in the section. Um, it's not like their eyes are glued on me or, or anything like that. But they can sense and everyone is so well trained to have their antennas out and to react to things that everyone in the section will pick up on the things that I'm doing. And so I think that's a, a, an important element of it also.
0: Yes, it sounds very multifaceted. You have to be musically prepared. Also, it sounds like administratively prepared when there's um, parts that have divisions, different um, two, three, or even four parts for the whole entire section. In orchestra, sometimes it sounds like a race car. You, you open the hood. There's a bunch of different parts and components. They all are interconnected. They affect each other different ways. Something happens here. It, it has an effect on this instrument or this part over here. And all these things go together before the audience is even in the hall to to hear the concert. So the hood is shut. On the outside, you see this beautiful um, Formula One race car, but there's so much more detail that goes into it. And that's all this little stuff that you have to do as principal viola, I guess, as a major orchestra.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think one of the most incredible things about an orchestra is that There are so many different jobs. I mean, you almost can't believe that, like, take, for example, uh, principal percussion. So a huge component of the job of a principal percussionist is figuring out where to put all the instruments. Right. Logistics. um, How many different copies of the music? Who's going to play which instruments? Do we need to put the triangle over by the glockenspiel because he has got to play the triangle, and then in one bar later, he's got to switch to the, or, well, no, we need the gong over here. You know, so... He's spending, you know, he doesn't have to practice uh, the triangle for four hours a day to play his part, but he has to spend hours uh, working out setups and things. So his job and my job are are so different. I mean, when it comes to playing our parts, we're, we're doing the same thing. We're being as musical as we can and trying to integrate into the group. The components of our job are so different, but it all comes together into one thing, which is this symphonic piece. You know, if you're playing a Strauss tone poem, we all come together and it turns into one entity, this Strauss tone poem. But it's a hundred people with vastly different jobs just kind of making it all happen.
0: Here's a question I love to ask. And if you don't have an answer, you don't have an answer, that's fine. If you have an answer and you need to change some of the names involved, that's highly recommended too. I'm wondering for you, what is just the craziest or weirdest thing that's happened to you with your viola or, or whatever on stage? Has there anything just been, has anything crazy happened on stage for you? For me? I feel like we've all got these stories, sometimes they're not, um, it takes about a decade before
1: they become funny. Yeah, well, I mean, am I allowed to go back to like my pre-professional years? Absolutely, that's almost encouraged. Yeah, I mean, the 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 most ridiculous thing probably that ever happened to me was uh, actually when I was in high school and I had a, a quartet and we would play sometimes for people's weddings and things like that as a, a chance to earn some money in school and um, so at this point I had I'd been a violinist and I was sort of transitioning to playing viola and My father was a violist, so he had. I was borrowing one of his instruments. It wasn't his best instrument, but it was another instrument that he had that I would use. And so off I went to this uh, wedding gig, and uh, I got there, and I was setting up, and I had my viola kind of sitting on my lap, like as if someone would hold a cello. I had it set like that, and I was unpacking my music stand, and I dropped... Uh, part of the music stand, it hit the top of the viola, and it snapped the bridge in half horizontally, um, and so all the st- you know, the bridge fell off. the The whole top is the strings are all loose and everything. And then inside the instrument, people may not know there's this uh, a little dowel that's called the sound post that transfers vibrations from the top of the instrument to the back and is basically responsible for the full sound that you get of an instrument well that uh, the sound post fell over so and we're supposed to play this wedding this is like the most important day in some people's lives here and i'm kind of panicking i'm like what am i going to do i mean i was i was so naive at that point i didn't really know anything about the health of instruments or anything and i took the two pieces of bridge and i like Put, I like balanced them one on top of the other and then really carefully retightened the strings down on top of these two parts of the bridge that were balanced on top of each other, cranked them up. The, still, there's no sound post in, which I've discovered later is a really bad idea because with all that tension on top of the instrument and not having the support of the post is not great, but I didn't know that. So I tightened the whole thing up, and you know when you play it, it, it made like almost no sound at all but I could play it and and so I I went through and played the whole uh wedding gig with a bridge snapped in half and no soundpost.
0: And and the bridge that's the 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 wooden part that holds the strings off the instrument right so that that's snapped. Yes. That's snapped into two pieces so it's kind of like
1: you had two horizontal pieces and you stacked them on top of each other. I stacked them on top and just used the tension of the strings to hold it together. Um you know, it could have easily just uh, popped again who knows, but it I mean I, it's something I would never recommend to myself or anyone else. The only reason I did it is because I was too dumb to realize what a bad idea it was.
0: Yes, always when something happens, well, nowadays we have, you know, we have Google, find the nearest instrument store, get another one or something, but it's so funny that, well, on, on one hand, I imagine that people getting married, it's the biggest day of their life. You're also probably not the first thing on their mind, so hopefully it just kind of happened and they didn't even notice.
1: Fortunately, they wouldn't have noticed unless, I mean... If they were really wanted to pay attention, they might have wondered why the violas couldn't put out a little more sound, but exactly, in in the context of everything they're thinking about, I'm sure is a complete uh, non-issue, and that's the last thing you want them to have to think about. The the whole point is that that gets taken care of so they shouldn't have to think about it. So fortunately, I, I don't think I ruined their wedding.
0: Yeah, I don't imagine the bride walking down the aisle and wondering, no, that viola doesn't sound as resonant as it could.
1: Yeah, I think the balance isn't quite the... Yeah, yeah, I don't think so.
0: Well, it, it all worked out in the end, and yes. um, no harm, no foul. That's right. Well, Dan, is there anything else that you wish audiences, classical music listeners, knew about the viola that they that they don't already, or that they wouldn't know?
1: You know, I don't think so. You've, you've asked a lot of great questions, and so we've covered a lot of uh, territory. I guess my only hope would be that when audiences go to uh, see an orchestra concert, we've talked about how sometimes it's hard to identify the viola, as it sort of is so similar to the violins, but you know, hopefully people will make uh, even more effort to use their eyes and their ears to sort of pick out the viola from uh, within the texture of the orchestra.
0: Well, I think we're all going to appreciate the viola even more when we see it in concert. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information about this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.